0: Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Roses are red, violets are blue, touch my pipe and I'll kill you. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, these sometimes are irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast, and I am your host, Brian Levine. On uh, tonight's show, in Pipe Parts, I'm going to answer a question about smoking a pipe in the car, because it kind of ties into some of a, a few of my favorite things, as well as a little bit of safety for both you and your pipe. I think I've touched on this in the past. Uh, but I'm gonna add a little bit to it, so we'll have that in pipe parts, and then uh, my uh, we'll we'll continue with story time with Alan Schwartz, and uh, in this part Alan starts getting juicy in details of pipes and pipe tobacco, and uh, there's a little there, there's some secrets in there that he's gonna divulge, so uh, we'll have that to listen to then uh, music mailbag and rant all that coming up in tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh and uh, so the so this weekend uh, has kicked off uh, this past weekend kicked off to be a good one. It is uh, the beginning of football season, so that means the beginning of marching band season and my daughter's final year as a uh, undergraduate in the marching band, so we went out for the football game uh which got <laughs> It, it got delayed because of lightning in the area. had nothing to do with rain. It was lightning in the area, and they had to clear the stands twice and then decided after almost a three-hour delay that they'd play the game the next day, and luckily we were able to stay and see the game and see the band and all that, but yeah, a little bit got changed. Um, and uh, I booked my first uh booked my first guest as a travel agent so uh, it's official i guess now that i've got one guest on a trip and i've got a couple other bookings out there too so if you're thinking of going anywhere on vacation check with me first brian.levine at mei-travel.com or hit me up on facebook or brian at pipesmagazine.com and before we go any further uh this one this show is going to have a little bit more irreverent part than normal so i will warn you that you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are and uh when we get to the music part if i don't if i don't remember then i'll say it now uh the music's a little more fun than then a little more uh, a little more edgy than what i would normally play but i love this song so we'll have that coming up all right, everybody, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go.
1: There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com.
0: All right, smoking in the car. Yeah, one of the few places where it's still legal in most states is uh, to smoke in your own car, and I regularly smoke in my car. Well, I smoke in two of the three cars. I don't smoke in the wife's car because that's her rule. Um, so, what do I do? Well, there's a couple of things. One, the the, the favorite thing that I have is a cup is, is an ashtray that fits in a cup holder. And it's made by uh, Stinky Cigar Ashtrays. Uh, but it's got, a, it's got a little metal flexible clip that's meant to hold a cigar. Well, I use that metal clip to hang a pipe into. And because it's a nice shiny metal, it works well with my car. And it also helps uh, keep the pipes and all the ashes in one spot. Uh, I keep my pipe cleaner and my tamper in there, so it is a little rattly sometimes, but it's all right there in one spot right by my hand. Um, While I'm driving and smoking, I do try to stay aware of not holding the pipe in my mouth for too long. I do that for two reasons. One, I, I drive with the window cracked, so all the smoke is going out the driver's side window. And I really don't want the pipe to get overheated by all the air pulling out that way. Uh, I don't want the pipe to get a bad spot in it because I'm holding it there for the whole drive, shall we say. So I will be very much aware of the fact that I want to keep it, you know, I'll set it down in the ashtray for a while, then pick it up again and puff on it for a couple of minutes and then put it back. And that's primarily to keep the pipe from burning out or getting damaged on one side of the bowl because of the air in it Uh, The other reason is is because with all these modern cars we all have airbags and The minute I get into traffic or get into a situation where there might be some breaking or whatever I want to get the pipe out of my mouth because I really don't want that airbag going off with the pipe, you know with the with me having a pipe in my mouth, so I'm always aware that I try to hold the pipe in my hand more than holding it in my mouth, but sometimes I catch myself Uh, So I just I just try to stay aware of that and I would suggest all of you that drive with your pipe in your mouth If you have airbags, you know, just be aware of that if uh, if an accident does happen and the airbag goes off eh, that could be a little bad for your pipe and you Um, So again, the other thing that I do is I smoke with the window cracked and then uh, I keep all the pipe cleaners and my tamper in that little metal cigar ashtray in the cup holder and, I, and again, I really don't change the way I smoke. The one thing that I may do before I get in the car is, like this weekend when we had a four-hour drive there and back to the football games, uh, I will load two pipes in advance. And I might do the charring light on both of those pipes before we get in the car. That just makes lighting the pipe a little easier. And, you know, it it's... For me, it's impossible to fill a pipe when I'm driving in a car, or fill it correctly, um, or fill it safely, because <laughs> uh, driving with your knees is not always advised. Uh, but I'll I'll do that. I'll load up the pipes that I need for that drive, uh, or I may load up the pipes for halfway of the drive, and then when we're you know when we're at a stop, get out, dump them, and everything. Uh, the other thing that I'll do is I will use smaller than my smaller pipes than more than my larger pipes. You know, I hear guys talk about their car pipe and how and how they get a big pipe for the car ride. Well, I do the opposite. I would rather have two or three small pipes than one or two big pipes because halfway through the bowl, I like to be able to uh, dump the ash. And... In the car, the way I've got the setup going right now, there is no place really for me to comfortably dump the ash, so I'll use a smaller bowl that doesn't always require dumping the ash. Or if we get into, uh, if I get into a spot where traffic is slower and I can, you know, work the tamper while holding the steering wheel and all that, I may loosen up some ash and dump it out the window. Uh, now, when it comes to, and this is what uh, the, this is what the listener uh, asked about. Uh, listener Jose sent me. Uh, what do you do about the smell in your car? Well, <laughs> you know, it, here's what I found out. Most of the smell comes from the ashes, unless you're smoking a an English blend. Uh, Latakia tends to hang in a room or tends to attach to stuff. Most of the smell comes from leaving ashes in the car. So I just try to keep my ashtray clean, I keep the window open, and I just keep on trucking with the, you know, with smoking my Virginia Pariks. Now, to a non-smoker, when they get in the car, sure, it does smell like it's been smoked in, but it doesn't smell nearly as bad as... A car that's been filled with cigarettes or even worse a cigar because the smoke out of a pipe is just so much lighter and cleaner Uh, if you're worried about it uh, my wife's gotten me some of these Febreze car things that uh, clip onto the vents and stuff and I've put those in and those help just kind of clean it up the other trick is uh, dryer sheets if you take a dryer sheet Put it on the, you know, just put it on the floor of the car, close up the car then overnight. And those dryer sheets grab a lot of that smell out of the air. And most of them have some sort of scenting to them, and they put that out. So use that. I've used that trick in rental cars, and it works very well. You just have to make sure that the night before you're going to turn in the rental car, you put the dryer sheet in the, in the car, let it sit there overnight, And then take it out before you return the car and don't smoke in it for that little, for that drive back to the airport. Uh, But don't tell anybody I told you that. All right, there you go. If you have any suggestions on how to uh, keep your car smelling fresh, even though you want to smoke your pipe in it, please post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on PipesMagazine.com or the Pipes Magazine radio show page on Facebook, or you can email me, Brian, at PipesMagazine.com. All right, in just a minute, more story time with Alan Schwartz. This is Internet Radio. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a
2: high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line, and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at smokingpipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes, I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at SmokingPipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com.
0: Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. All right, so last one we heard from uh, Alan. We were talking about ordering pipes from the factories in specific sizes and stuff like that. So we just kind of pick up there.
3: During World War II when the Glenn Miller Band... um enlisted in the army and they were playing. Apparently, when they marched in a parade or or even uh, stood as a band and played, one of the generals in charge was objected strenuously to the fact that the trombones didn't all move their slides at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> and when somebody tried to, I'm serious, and everybody who knows anything about it knows that the reason that the trombones move their slides differently is that the, each each of the three or four trombones are playing different parts, okay? Yeah. They're not playing the same part. They're playing different parts, uh, and, and that's for the harmony. So you have to move the slide differently to play, uh, uh, you know, a B-flat rather than a, a, a G-sharp, you know. But whatever it is, It means you move the trombone slide. Well, this general objected. They said, well, why don't you put them in the back, you know? (laughs) And they said, we can't put them in the back because otherwise the trombone slide's going out, stab the player in front of them and bang them around. And that same general said, well, then take those trombones out of the band, you know? I mean, they never did, you know, but they had to uh, pacify them. But there are people like that. There are people who, oh, no, no, my pipe has to fit in this size. Why? Because because the ashtray in my car is that big. I mean, people tell you stupid things like that. So you say, okay, yeah. well, so here's a small, you know, but but to do it on a whole shipment, you have to be of a certain mentality. And uh, I, and most people I know don't share it, but there are some people who do, who love, they, they like everything to be absolutely uniform. You know, what do you mean? It's a billiard. A billiard is supposed to be this high in the bowl and this this long in the shank and, and, and that have a stem like that. So uh, to that person, what you just showed him is not a billiard. Uh, you
0: know. <laughs> so, so, what well, you're no. what you're saying is that it, it might have been common for you sometimes to get a shipment of uh, the shape might call for a five inch a five and a half inch long billiard, you know, that had an inch and a half bowl, and there might be variations in those measurements. No, it, exactly,
3: it would almost be almost always be variations and. You had to deal with people who did. Some of us got pipes back, uh, you know, from from some of the dealers, which I cheerfully, you know, there there were a bunch of a bunch of pipes that were not, you know, that would, that would that that they were billiard as far as the as far as the as far when when the block was cut it was cut by machine, it was exactly what the machine cut. Okay, but then in the process of manufacturing, they discovered that there was a big crack in the shank uh uh you know an inch in i'm just making that up a half inch in so they cut the shank a little smaller so they could, could drill the hole the air hole properly because it's not drilled until the until the the, the block the stummel is, is, is not a stummel yet it, it's a, it's it's just a, a raw pipe cut to the shape, and they discovered that they couldn't fit the mouthpiece in, so they had to use a slightly smaller shank and a slightly longer mouthpiece. Yeah. Now, most people don't object to that, but there are some people who will because you can't explain to mm-hmm. them that this is not produced like sausages. I sure <laughs> sausages have variations, but, you know, yeah. basically we expect a certain shape, to fit a certain size, and I would bet that these days when, uh, you know, Sausages, when they're handmade, will be different from the kind that are cranked out by machines. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 it just has to be. Now, what I was saying, there is a difference about making the pipes. Uh, lately, well, not lately, because uh, I left. I I actually stopped working in the actual buying and selling of pipes and tobacco. Oh, about ten years ago, but. I've I've kept active in in the business with doing some trading and doing this and that and keeping up with people doing it and doing the shows etc cetera, etc, cetera. and selling off uh, at that uh, at the consumer shows selling off parts of my own collection because I I don't know what I'm going to do with all these hundreds of pipes uh, you know so I I sell them anyway so all beside the point but I went to. Um, a pipe company that does uh, mostly contract work. They only establish themselves under their own name, which I forget at the moment, but I, it'll come to me as I talk. They showed me when I went to order a large, very large, they were very good customers there uh, in a, uh, they were outside uh, Milan in the area that uh, Savinelli uh, occupies, um, that whole district was filled with little, filled with little, little shops, little um, artisan shops, uh, large and small, a lot of them were offshoots of the uh, originally the Fratelli Rossi uh, factory, uh, which in which Savinelli itself, uh, Fratelli Rossi goes back before the turn of the century, they were the biggest pipe factory in the world, and, um, and produced millions and gazillions of pipes. And when when they they declined and went out of business. They had all these buildings around. Some of them were, were factories that made the stems, and some of them were factories that did this. And a lot of them were sold off or occupied by former pipe makers looking to start their own business. And this is in an area that's kind of—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, it's north of Milan, but um, you know, not—not—not not, not an enormous distance. I mean, you know, 50 miles or so on, and uh, and runs along the road that runs from Lake Maggiore to Lake. Como, uh, Downward there, like majority were different from the people who were up at Como. So, uh, but anyway, they they all established, it. and one of the companies was doing a lot of contract work, and and they were recommended to me by uh, Wolfgang Dietz from the Nicotia, who was having um, many of his pipes made there, and. He, I went with him and he introduced me and I began to look at the stuff and I, they, started, they started making pipes for me. And then I was there on a visit a couple of years later and he said, come Alan," and he said, I want to show you our new machine. And what they had in a special uh, out, outbuilding, which existed before, but they set it up specially for this. They had a machine which, in which the shape of the pipe or anything you wanted, it could have been a wooden box, but the shape of the pipe was programmed into a computer and you could make any little adjustment you wanted. So you wanted those billiards with the longest stems, you actually designed it, put it on screen, it took all the measurements and then uh there were certain things that had to be done by hand, but somebody went down to the machine and laid in the holders for the for the blocks of briar uh, and they were, I don't know, I don't remember how many rows, but let's say there were 20 rows uh, in which, which, which each row held uh, five pipes, okay? So, well, 10 pipes, if, if you want to keep the math simple, uh, 10 pipes in a row, It wasn't that much, but let's say, just so we do easy math, because it's not my strong point. Uh, and then the they would start them, once the program was there, and the design of the pipe, You saw, you saw like an architect's drawing, um, and the, the the machine would start working and electronically turn you know turn the knives and so on that they came down on top of the ten pipes you had in a row, and at the end all the pipes ran through and would dumped into a, on a moving belt or I don't recall whether it moved. I think they was they stayed in place. All the pipes were cut perfectly, and then you went down and collected all the pipes. Um, and there you were. And if you wanted any variation on, on a standard design, you could uh, do it on the spot. Except, of course, they, they didn't want to start the machine and run something for three pipes. For, the, for that, you go to a handmaker. <laughs> yeah. But it was incredible to watch. So these days, you could take that uh, billiard pipe, which we just used in this example, and make the... Uh, make the bowl taller, make the the mouthpiece, uh, the shank shorter. You could do whatever you want. Uh, if if that was a shape you wanted to have and you could give the factory an order which made it worth them setting up. And you could also, by the way, have it, uh, and that's still true even in the old style of making the pipes, you could have it at any quality. If you said, look, I I can't, I can't go for the top of the line, the free from floor pipes, uh, you know, because they just cost too much for me. I don't have the market for it because by the time I get finished paying you, the. the manufacturer and because they're premium you know i mean you get uh free from floor you'll maybe get uh out of a shipment of of 500 500 blocks in a standard bag of briar you will get uh, maybe 100 that are usable that way and the rest you know they go down sending pyramid and finally the the last the bottom of it you you could the last 200 or so you could uh, as well sell for firewood but they're not sold for firewood <laughs> Uh, so the the free from floor and pipes that will uh, you know be guaranteed as free from floor uh, will occupy the top of this pyramid and of which maybe ten will have perfect straight grain or bird 's eye. so you can see where the value is being driven and and the man- but if you said to the manufacturer look i want I want the lower end of the pyramid, the bottom of the pyramid you know from the last hundred or two hundred, and I want you to make me." Uh, this uh, from from all of your shipments, so I'm getting this grade of pipe. We know that it has flaws in it, but you're going to you're going to putty it, you're going to varnish it, and so on. But we're still going to get that pipe with a you know with a, with a four inch high bowl and a, <laughs> and a one inch long shank and a very long mouthpiece, and they'll do it. And then you'll have something that you probably could only sell when a movie like The Hobbit comes out, and you have, oh, that's the place where we're going to have Bilbo Baggins smoking this long pipe. <laughs> and suddenly, everybody, even you know, you see them at the uh, at the trade shows, and they all they want, they kept ordering, can you get us this, this kind of pipe, you know, and bring this guy says, yes, I can. Uh, what quality? Oh, I want perfect straight grain, and I would say never. <laughs> I said no, but that, go to a, go to a good pipe maker and have him make you one. You know, because I'm I, I'm not turning the world upside down. I, I don't know how. Uh, I, I deal with factories that cut what we ask them to, but but we have to have it let out. If I make a pipe that you want and I can't sell it to another thousand people, I don't have a business. So I try to stick to the upper and top middle. End of the business, and when I was doing it, uh, because that's what I could sell. It was, after all, a relatively small company by compared to the giants, and I I had to carry goods that had a range, and I had to have retailers who didn't only sell to the con- connoisseurs, I had to have retailers who sold only to, uh, you know, retailers who sold to the entire gamut of purchasers. A yeah. guy comes in, he wants a $20 pipe, he wants a $20 pipe. That's his budget. Well, that's his philosophy. He doesn't believe in expensive pipes, so after you want to supply that, that's fine. I didn't basically, but if you want to supply it, that that that's great. If you don't want to supply it, you have to choose your niche in the market. Otherwise, you have to go into private, you know, private strictly your own label and strictly making things in a very small workshop that please you. And if you're lucky enough to, to, to. Make a, a niche in the market and are satisfied with the income that you have, that's fine. That's how a lot of the great pipe makers got got their businesses in order. And then suddenly that pipe became worth much more money, you know. I mean, Conovitz pipes, uh, you know, bang pipes, and so on. I'm not saying that they're beautifully made, but they didn't start making beautiful pipes. Those guys were all somehow part of the Danish revolution that went on in the... Uh, um, you know, in the '60s and the late '50s and '60s and into the '70s, it's something I wrote about. I wrote a long, long piece about it in the uh, in Smoke magazine when they still had a pipe 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 section, a real pipe section, uh, which I edited for them. Uh, but it was uh, um, they all got started in. They got started working in factories, learning the business. I mean, I think you you know, and they chose the niche that they wanted to do. Now uh, Eric uh, Nording still uh, can uh, he's he's a he's an industrial engineer by profession originally and he even got cooked in the pipe business and he has designed his own machines I mean, I've been yeah. there. I've been in his factory, but and 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 watch the machines working. But he will, he knows how to make the dies. He can do them in, in the factory, okay? And he set up some all kinds of things to make peculiar shapes that he thought were really wonderful. And sometimes they sold, and sometimes they didn't. But worked over the years, and he built up a thing where oh, now it's a Nording. It has this, It has its own niche in the market, <laughs> and a lot of people think that that is. And uh, some of them he has to farm out because he can't afford to make them.
0: And I am one of those people who's been guilty of buying a pipe because it fit perfectly in a spot in my car. All right, we'll have more uh, juicy tidbits and stories with Alan Schwartz after this break.
4: Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. Just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter, visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today.
0: we are back on the pipes magazine radio show and here's more alan schwartz
3: so those of us who fancy very very fine pipes and are willing to pay the money for it are a real minority it's a very very small segment of the market uh, by comparison with the mass market it's uh um i was told that so many times by the people who blend tobacco they would say oh yeah we love to do that for you but you know you realize that you're producing for the German word is Feinschmeckers, so it sounds like an insulting word, but it means fine-smellers, you know, connoisseurs, that's the word <laughs> for connoisseur. In they said, yeah, you're producing, how many Feinschmeckers do you have? You know, I said, I don't know, you know, 300? They said, you won't earn a living from 300 random customers who don't order every day. So I said, well, I'll carry other stuff for the other customers who do, but uh, you know, they, they, they try to help me. And that goes back to the original theme. I found in the pipe and tobacco business, at least at the level I was working at on a direct one-to-one with the manufacturers. And, of course, I wasn't dealing with uh, gigantic combines like Philip Morris. You know, you know what I'm saying? He also yeah. produced lots of pipe tobacco or, or the larger houses here that produced commercial. I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with those. I was dealing with smaller but very good factories that would work to order, at least within the parameters of what they thought they could do. And that's where I set my sights, and I was able to produce many, many different nice tobaccos, and I inherited or, or got the option for distributing, you know, some of the really top, top brands, uh, uh, and from that was it. We built up a nice business, and, uh, and uh, now it's, it's a nice business that, you know, I like to look at. I did something.
0: Yeah, and oftentimes I'd call you and you'd have to rush off the phone because you were getting ready for a UPS pickup at you know your regular scheduled day cuz you'd be in the you'd be in the warehouse picking and putting orders together.
3: Yeah. Yeah, be- because I I was uh yeah, I mean I had people who worked for me and we got bigger and bigger as as time went on, you know, with a nice staff, but it was run by us. It was still it wasn't—it wasn't quite a mom and pop, as you think of in a retail store, where there's just the, the owner and his wife. But Joan and I ran that company. I mean, she—she's very good with all kinds of office stuff, and she really took care of that. And we had a full-time bookkeeper, and we had, uh, you know, people who worked in the back, and you know, and all that. And we, we were able to contract out if we needed somebody else to help out a couple of days to pack packages, you know, for a Christmas rush or whatever it was, but or whatever it happened to be but um i even learned to drive a forklift that was fun
0: <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> did you yeah oh you when i worked when i worked at stokeby they had training for it and they said all right well come on back here we you know, we, we had to buy it. we had to get the trainer out here so you know you get x amount of people and then they told me that i was not allowed to go back there anymore uh because i was having too much fun with the forklift and then about two years later they realized that everybody in the back was going to be on vacation so here i was in the back of the warehouse running the forklift and picking and pulling orders for a couple of days
3: yeah i i had i had a a, a similar experience but it it, it I, not quite but it turned out differently because i had a uh, uh when i was looking for a warehouse i I had come from a warehouse that had a uh, a loading dock, and I thought that uh, because I shared space with a larger company, uh, my first warehouse, and after that ran its course, I I went around with a uh, a friend who was not in the tobacco business or in the food business, but he was a very very good friend. He is still is, and. Uh, and he, I told him what I was looking for, got in touch with some people who I knew rented them, had large, you know, who were in real estate. Uh, I don't mean agents, but I mean, you know, people who actually own the companies, owned, owned the buildings. And I, I had a number, a list of addresses, and I went around. And I wound up choosing a warehouse with a level entry. Uh, rather than a loading dock, because I figured that's a small company. I mean, the kind of shipments I was getting could be unloaded from the UPS uh, truck, or even if they were larger, I wasn't buying in pallets yet. Well, you know, as the company grew and we were successful, we started buying in larger quantities because we got better prices, we got better rates from the shippers and so on, and we made our, you know, Kohlhauser and the other big companies that we, fairly large companies that we ordered stuff from, uh, we made them, much happier um and uh when <laughs> and, and they gave us better prices, but what I needed to uh, uh, unload the or to to have the stuff off the truck and move it into a warehouse, I needed a forklift. So I used to borrow one from one of my neighbors, and that was fine with him. Uh, and I, but then I got tired of that, and I looked around for used forklift, and I found one, and and uh, and, and bought it, and had some mechanical work done on it. Then I had to teach myself to to drive it, and I did. And you know it's, it wasn't that hard, but believe me, I made a couple of mistakes. A couple of times, I put the forks through, <laughs> you know, through, through, uh, 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 through the, 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 packing, the packing crate and uh, damaged some tobacco and tins and so on. You know, right? it, did, it didn't happen, didn't happen more than once or twice. But but it was fine. And then, of course, you get you get you expand. You start doing things. Suddenly, you got a forklift. So suddenly, you say, well, you know, if I bought. If I bought 3,000 pounds of this rather than 300 pounds, and since I've got a forklift and I've got a warehouse, an air-conditioned warehouse that can keep it perfect order, there's no reason I shouldn't benefit from the better <laughs> price I'll get. And I'm exaggerating <laughs> to make the point. Yeah. But from buying 3,000 pounds rather than 300 pounds. So, you know, with buying 3,000 pins of, of Ratray's old gallery or whatever it was uh, that we, we ordered, uh, ordering more than I really needed, knowing I could keep it perfectly well, didn't matter how long, a couple of years, in an air-conditioned warehouse, in in the original uh, cartons, in the original crates, you know, why don't pack them until you need them? So it was, it was, it was that it was the way we grew, and we eventually got a larger warehouse and and then we needed all uh, we rented an auxiliary warehouse across the across the uh, delivery court, we had the forklift and we had a larger staff, and you know you keep going like that, and eventually you you wonder, so how come is it I'm selling three thousand pounds of tobacco? This year, as opposed, I, I wouldn't We'd nothing for a year, but I'm selling 3,000 pins uh, three of this or pounds, as the case might be, um, or kilos. Uh, and and uh, at the end of the day or at the end of the year, after five or six or eight or nine years, you find that you're really, really not making much more money than you did when you started <laughs> that's the irony on a self-created business especially if you want to hold certain standards and you say i'm not giving people direct smoke i don't care you know what it is i'm not giving them junk i'm not giving them pipes that i think should be burned as firewood well you're making choices that limit your market And once you've done, done that you're okay but you still become the Un, almost unwilling or unconscious victim of the whole marketing universe that we live in, unless you're only going to deal with handmade pipes and you have a pipe uh, pipe maker who's who's who hand carved beautiful pipes very inexpensively but doesn't want to handle a business and that's a two man show you know what I mean there's, there's there's enough money in that only can become an agent for about ten of those people. As we know, yeah. that works in the business, and you have you go around to all the pipe shops and you sell them the pipes by uh, Italian or you know, German or French or, or Dutch or whatever they happen to be, and you sell ten here and a dozen there and two dozen there, and then eventually you know the commissions are valid, but it only uh, only if you have uh, you know ten different brands to represent, and you have uh, you know a thousand shops, and the universe of shops has gotten so much smaller, especially the ones that will buy high end high-end, hand-carved pipes. So it's a very, very strange and also very competitive business uh, with retailers often willing to follow the latest trends, somebody they read about in one of the smoking magazines, which also very few that treat pipes, you know, uh, uh, as a standalone subject. Uh, uh, We know one or two, but uh, most of them will have an article or two the others will have an article to uh, focus on pipe because, again, the people who run magazines are interested in selling copies. You know, not And that's that, uh, that's being cynical. That doesn't mean the editors are. That doesn't mean the people who write the articles are. That means that the business division of the magazine, which may be owned by a larger corporation, and they want profits. They want bottom line. They want to know that you sold a, you know, a thousand copies rather than hundred copies or ten thousand copies or a hundred thousand copies. You know, and that that's where their money is. Uh, because then the cost of production go down. It's the same thing. It's, it's the same thing you learn from being in the pipe business. You learn being in the magazine business or being in the, uh, you know, in, in, in the rack trade. It's just uh, just the way that business works. You uh, can't help it. I didn't invent that way. Uh,
0: what, anyway. what pipe tobacco brands did you end up being the importer for? Uh,
3: all of the rack trays uh all of the mcconnell uh the wessex was my own but it got uh into quite great number and i would see what else we imported um we imported stuff from peter heinrichs which was um you know, the stuff that he represented in the shop, and uh, which I could try, sample in, in good. so I never had him create anything for us, but uh, his tobacco was produced by various people. Some so in a lot by Kohlhauser, quite a bit by uh, uh, Scandinavian Tobacco, you know, some of the other yeah. companies. Peter was able to close shots, and he was a very big retailer, and he, he had a lot of clout in the business, and then, in, I mean, he died a few years ago, he was a very good friend of mine. And, um, but, you know, and so there were a lot of tobaccos there, which were only produced by, uh, two, three, four different companies, you know, depending on who did this well, you know, if he would decide that there was a company that made a better Virginia flake than the one he had, uh, he would, he would bring it out. And eventually, uh, you know, because he was losing money on the one he had. So that was in his catalog eventually when he sold out his stock, it sort of disappeared. And, um, you know, and there were five people who cried, and they tried something else, and they liked it, so they bought something else that he was more willing to sell. That was, the, again, the same story. You know, if you, you can't sell the stuff that you make. How, you're not pleasing yourself. You know, I could smoke all the tobacco I want, but and if I only try to sell the tobacco I like, you know, I, I have no business. So uh, let me see. I, so there, were, there was the McConnell tobacco, which I wound up having all of, and there was the... Um, stuff I got from Kohlhauser, which not only was it the, uh, rat trays, but was also, um, Freiberg and Treyer and, um, Astley's was one of those. Um, and again, I'd have to look in my sales list just because you put me on the spot. I can't remember every one of them, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm serious. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I, they're all in the drawer. I'd have to look them up. I could, uh, you know or call you back at some point or a fax you a list so you could read them into the but um, what else
0: Uh, so uh, earlier in in our discussions you talked about trying to your entry into the market was to try to buy the McConnell company and you end up being the importer in the U.S. for it anyway
3: yeah yeah right if I just waited long enough well, you know, that that was a complicated story because McConnell, as I said, changed his mind. And he caught me at a moment when I had spent a lot of time and money developing his project. And my two English partners were getting disgusted. They were business guys. You know, they wanted to do a deal. And we he dragged it out for a year. We finally went to contract. And uh, I think I went through this with you. Yeah. The law being in England yep. that if you don't accept something of value in return for putting your name on the sheet, uh, on, on, on a signing sheet, uh, you, you can really abrogate the contract without any penalty, which is what he did. Uh, I didn't know it. We were advised uh, to recognize that because if we had given – we did give McConnell a check, but he didn't cash it, which would be the equivalent of signing it. And when a couple of, you know, a few weeks, a month later, he said he decided that he didn't want to sell. He wanted to hold out for a better price. I was so fed up at that time that I said I have to walk away and throw him out the window. I said I have to walk away from the scan. I can't do it anymore. You know, I can't spend the time and money with you dancing around with that. And when he called, when he called back, uh, you know, trying to sell me the company again, I said, no, I can't do it. And you know what? I think that I was just I was just worn out by that. I think that had I said, "Okay, Ken, so let's go back to square one." Now the first thing I have is my partner Mike is going to drive over and hand you a check, which you're going to sign in his presence. I said that's the first thing. So now we have a deal based on the original deal because there's no reason to change it. You know, a month later, I should have said that, but I didn't. I and I, it was one of my. Great business mistakes. No, I, listen. I don't know where we would have been today if I had signed that. You know, we would have certainly moved to England to run it, uh, and wh- then I would have gone out and used my, uh, you know, uh, business acumen, whatever there was, uh, and 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 gotten more customers and enlarged the sales and the brands that so we would still be going today, or we'd be a gigantic uh, multi multinational <laughs> corporation. I don't have any idea. I can dream have pipe dreams about it. But um that's that was that was a part of the learning experience. You know, you don't walk away mad. There's no such thing as getting mad and walking away. It's 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 you know, to try to deal with something and you get some crazy customers who won't, or sellers who won't do it unless they do it their way. And and you either have to say, I'm wasting my time here. I have to walk away from this or I'll pursue it as long as I can, because I really want this. And the more you want it, the, the stronger the position of the person who's selling it to you, the more they can ask and more they can be insistent. And so I guess at some point, McConnell didn't quite get the money he wanted. Uh, and, uh, and then in later years, it turned out that it all disappeared down the tubes. You know, we fortunately got the brands, but then uh, Michael has called me. He knew we were going through that negotiation, uh, but he was, he was a friend by that time, and furnishing tobacco. He knew I was going through that, and uh, he called me, and he said, guess what I just did? I, I didn't know. I said, he said, I bought McConnell's. I said, here, SOB, how'd you do that? He said, Ken McConnell offered it to him, and at a good price, and he was able to cut his deal. Because McConnell, who wanted to retire, was desperate at that point, so he said, "No, I don't want this. Yes, I do want that." He said, "Yes, I will go come over and look at the, look at all the tobacco in stock, and tell you if I can use it." And I think it was up in storage somewhere in Manchester with Manchester Tobacco. They had they, um, they had the tobacco stored there. Don't ask me why, would they had it. It was cheaper to restore it in Manchester than it was in London. And he said he went went up and looked at it, and he said, you know, uh, at least half of it was pure dreck that wasn't worth it wasn't worth burning, let alone smoking. <laughs> but McConnell insisted that he take it; that that would have broken the that was the deal breaker. And McCann, uh, Michael Kohlhaas understood it, being a very canny businessman, and he uh, so he bought it all, and he managed to sell off the stuff that was not so good to cigarette manufacturers or or snuff manufacturers because he knew the business so well, he knew everybody in it. And I didn't know the business so well so that I could simply pick up the phone. I could, could simply pick up the phone and call somebody, but it was a, a much more limited thing against somebody who had been in it all of his life. So, yeah. you know, I didn't know the snuff manufacturers. And I didn't know the people who use tobacco and it's, uh, you know, poor quality tobaccos and so on. He did. So he bought the whole thing, gave McConnell a check, walked away, Uh, he took some of the machinery that was available, and he still had, he had it set up, it's probably still in the McConnell shop, in uh, Kola's shop, I saw some of it. You know, there was some of the blending drums and some of this and (laughs) some of that, and and the oven, the ovens, to, you know, to, to make the tobacco and cutters and things like that, he had he had to take it. And he sold a lot of it off because he decided that, uh, as the businessman that he was, that he was so buddy-buddy with Petersons, who were only, uh, you know, spitting distance away in, in Denmark. As I said, it was a three-hour drive or a half-hour flight. Uh, that he, he had them manufacture most of his tobacco to his specifications and ship it down to him because he said it really wasn't worth putting his people to work. Blending, but he got the cakes. He 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 did the cakes a little differently. I mean, I learned something there too. I don't know where this fits in the interview, but you can put it in somewhere. If, do you want me to go on with this?
0: Yeah, please. Love to hear about tobacco stuff.
3: Well, it's it's. Um, they would make a cake. Let's say you know, I don't know. Given us the specifics of the blend. Uh, you know, which they will lay it. The Petersons make cakes beautifully, uh, uh, flakes beautifully. They really they really were masters of it. And I would there many times to watch them do it. And they would set up, they would put the tobaccos in, and then you know, the machine presses on tobacco, and then it goes into these ovens, some of which uh, are for short-term, some of which are long-term, uh, some apply pressure. You know, the pressure is applied or not applied, as the case might be, depending upon the blend that you want to make. They've got that all worked out. And uh, Kohlhausel would then receive stacks. I saw the way they came in. They had to come in. They could have come in by plane, but they, they didn't. It was easy. They put, they loaded a big the trailer with what he was getting. And they sent it down the road from, uh, you know, from Horsens, Denmark to Hamburg. Uh, it, was, you know, it was a days run, not even a days run, a days run for uh, the, um, the driver. Um, which I don't know if it was their own driver, it was a shipping company. I really don't know, but it had to go through since it was crossing the border, and this was before, before Europe was the EU, um, and so on. And, and you know, I don't know what the customs rules were in that day for trucks coming down the road from one to the other. Anyway, they would deliver it. And I saw them there standing in the warehouse, uh, or, you know, in the humidified part of the warehouse and they were standing there stacked up, I mean, large stacks of this, that, and the other. And he would say, Mike would say, this is the cake that we're using for old gallery and uh, some other blends that uh, went out under different labels, but not in the rat group, you know, but, um, under different labels, which are actually the same blend. Um, which goes on all the time, all the time. There are McConnell blends that use the same tobacco as the Rattray blends. But uh, you put a different name on it, put it in a different color tin, and the consumer will swear it's different tobacco. Yeah. I mean that's, that's an old story. They swear it's different tobacco, and you yourself know that you made it and you put it in different tins, and they insist that it's different. So you say, okay, whatever. You know, I don't want to sell it, and I, don't, I don't have to <laughs> yeah. win this argument. You know, it's uh, so I, I don't tell people that anymore. I hardly do. I'm telling it to you, and it'll go out, and you, you know, with uh, limited circulation. But um, I don't want to emphasize it because then they'll go back and they'll say, you know what Alan Schwartz said, you
0: know, you, you know. but it's true. <laughs> well, I told you there'd be some, uh, some juicy inside stuff in these, uh, in, in tonight's, uh, stories with Alan Schwartz. Hope you're enjoying it. Comments or questions, email me, brian at pipes or post them on the pipes magazine radio show page on pipes or, uh, Facebook or, you know, all those other places. All right, we'll be back in just a minute.
5: I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell and Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age, and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now. Each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenet's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years cornell and deal seller series the secret ingredient is time contact your local or online retailer for information
4: this is internet radio
0: and we are back on the pipes magazine radio show all right here we go for music it's a song called seven drunken nights And it's done by Brob Dinganagian Bards. Brob Dinganagian Bards. B R O B D I N G N A G I A N Bards. B A D B A R D S. And uh, David pointed this one out to me, and it's got a couple of appropriate lines in there, and then a little fun, risque stuff in there. So here it is.
1: As I got home on Monday night, as drunk as drunk could be, I saw a horse outside my door, where my horse ought to be. So I called me wife and I said to her, Hey wife! Will you kindly tell to me? Who owns that horse outside my door where my horse ought to be? Ah, you drunk, you drunk, you silly old fool, so drunk you cannot see. That's a lovely sow that me mother sent to me. I've traveled the world all over, a hundred miles or more, but a saddle on a sow sure I've never seen before. And as I got home on Tuesday night, as drunk as drunk could be, I saw a coat behind my door. Where my coat ought to be. So I called me wife and I says to her, Hey wife! Will you kindly tell to me? Who owns that coat behind my door? Where my coat ought to be. Ah, you drunk, you drunk, you silly old fool. So drunk you cannot see. That's a lovely blanket that me mother sent to me. I've traveled the world all over. A hundred miles or more. But buttons on a blanket sure I've never seen before. As I got home on Wednesday night, as drunk as drunk could be, I saw a pipe beside my chair, where my pipe ought to be. So I called me wife and I says to her, Hey wife! Will you kindly tell to me, who owns that pipe beside my chair, where my pipe ought to be? Ah, you drunk, you drunk, you silly old fool, so drunk you cannot see. That's a lovely tin whistle that me mother sent to me. I've traveled the world all over, a hundred miles or more But tobacco and a tin whistle, sure I've never seen before As I got home on Thursday night As drunk as drunk could be I saw two boots beneath the bed Where my boots ought to be So I called me wife and I says to her "Me wife! Will you kindly tell to me who owns the boots beneath the bed where my boots ought to be? Ah, you drunk, you're drunk, you silly old oh, fool, so drunk you cannot see. That is two geranium pots me mother sent to me. i traveled the world all over, a hundred miles or more, but laces on geranium pots I've never seen before. And as I got home on Friday night, as drunk as drunk could be, I saw a head upon the bed where my head ought to be. So I called me wife, and I says to her, Hey, wife! Will you kindly tell to me? Who owns the head upon the bed where my head ought to be? Ah, you drunk, you drunk, you silly old fool, so drunk you cannot see. That's a lovely baby that me mother sent to me. I've traveled the world all over, a hundred miles or more. But whiskers on a baby sure I've never seen before. Except on Mark sometimes, but we'll skip that. As I got home on Saturday night, as drunk as drunk could be, I saw two hands upon her breasts oh, yeah. where my hands ought to be. <laughs> so I called me wife and I says to her, hey wife, will you kindly tell to me who owns the hands upon your breasts where my hands ought to be? Ah, you you're be drunk, you're drunk, you silly old fool, so drunk you cannot see. That's a lovely nightgown that the mother sent to me. I've traveled the world all over, a hundred miles or more But fingers on a nightgown sure I've never seen before And as I got home on Sunday night As drunk as drunk could be I saw a lad sneaking out the back A quarter after three what? 2.45 2.45? Okay. So I called me wife and I says to her Will you kindly tell to me?
2: No, way. Hey, wife! <laughs> oh, wait, that's late.
1: <laughs> Who was that last thing out the back a quarter after three? Ah, you're drunk, you're drunk, you silly old fool. So drunk, you cannot see. That was just the tax man that the queen, she said to me. I've traveled the world all over, a hundred miles or more. But an Englishman it can last till three I've never seen before. Or
0: 245, whichever one is. All right, yes, that's right. Well, that was fun, and I'll tell you the rest of their uh, the rest of their songs on uh, on Spotify are a lot of fun too. Again, it's Brobdinagian Bards, B R O B D I N G N A G I A N Bards. Uh, I found them on Spotify, and it's a lot of fun. A lot of good drinking songs too.
5: Uh-huh message from the dark side there is
0: in the mailbag we go back to uh two weeks ago where uh, we had uh rabbi ira on and uh crash the gray rights hopefully i'm not too late he was uh i thought i'd already commented this week i guess i'm losing my mind a uh, great show a very interesting perspective and i really enjoyed hearing about the musar movement and researched rabbi stone a bit <coughs> Every once in a while, this show transcends the pipe community in a good way. I also love how much you love your car. Yes, I love my car. And uh, if you're following me on Facebook, you'll see that she's gotten a few new toys in the past couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, little decorations here and there. Uh, but no, that's the one, of the one of the beauties and one of the things I really abs- absolutely wanted to do at this show was make sure that it sounds like what you would find at a pipe club or... It sounds like what you'd hear at a pipe show, and meeting all these fascinating people that were all connected by the pipe is all part of it. So That's why you get people like Rabbi Ira on the show. Uh, and then uh, going back to the last week's show with uh, with Ron Smith on, uh, in regards to pipe parts, Lord of the Pipe Ring says, I'm pretty monogamous to flame, cleaner, and tamper. I'm admittedly pretentious with my unwavering use of an IM Corona old boy lighter. Uh, for pipe cleaners, it's only the Brigham ones. As for tampers, I have an 8 Deco that I bought, oh, probably five or six years ago that I use daily. I really like that 8 Deco has a carrying case for it so I can slip it in that case and put it in my pocket without worrying about getting ashes everywhere. Another great interview, even though Ron used to be a lawyer. Always fun to hear the stories from pipe people. Best of luck, Ron, with the carving. And then, uh, and then he finally writes, uh, hope this final band season is a great one for your daughter, you, and your wife. Also positive vibes that your daughter's senior year is a good one. Yeah, I'm sure she'll, uh, yeah, she'll, she'll survive it. Uh, <laughs> whether or not the school will, that's a whole different thing. Uh, and then continuing on with last week's show, Crash the Gray said, uh, The interview felt a little off. But I think it's just me readjusting after so much summer series. <laughs> yeah, it was me readjusting, too. Uh, then he says, thanks for sharing some of your favorites. I'm cur- I currently carry the tamper you previously mentioned by Brigham, and I'm very happy to learn about the 8 Deco. I have apparently missed the company altogether, but I really like the idea of the ventilated tamp. Uh, the music selection was fun and different. Nice change of pace. Good. Glad you like the music. Uh, and then Casey Ghost says, "I have some very good tampers, but only use the standard pipe nail for actual work. And I really like my IM Corona lighter. Uh, I only use long six and a half inch pipe cleaners. Really like the interview with Ron, though. He makes uh, uh, inexpensive pipes. Yeah, and it, you know, and listen, it's nice to have all price ranges on the show." And then finally, Down Home Smoker says Ron made for a nice interview. Just seems like an all-round good guy, and who doesn't appreciate someone that uh, and who doesn't appreciate someone that wants to make pipes that are accessible to the masses. I'll have to give the Brigham Cleaners a try. On a side note, I hope to be able to chat with you again this year at the KC Pipe Show. I enjoyed our chat last year. Pleasant smokes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you again. I will be there. Uh, I'm getting in on Thursday and leaving on Sunday, so looking forward to it and hopefully the weather will be decent and again if you have any comments or questions post them on the pipes magazine radio show page on uh, pipesmagazine.com or you know how to get them to me all right rant time coming up next
5: this is phil morgan general manager of missouri Meersham corncob pipes in washington missouri
0: Los Angeles technically the San Fernando Valley I mean that's where I grew up I was born in San Francisco but I grew up in the San Fernando Valley where the weather is and I used to tell people it was two weeks of summer two weeks of winter and 48 weeks of the same damn thing just a spring and that's one of the reasons why people like living in Los Angeles now I lived in Las Vegas for four years where there is a definite winter and there's a definite summer and there's about three weeks of fall and about four weeks of spring and now uh, for the past 18 years been on the east coast and this isn't so much as a rant as it is more of an observation but it seems like the weather here on the east coast yeah we've got humidity which i don't mind that much but it seems like the weather here is the, the seasons are just long enough to where you are sick and tired of that season and ready for the next one we hit september 1st last week and boy am i ready for some cool weather i'm done with the heat and the humidity and i'm ready for that cool weather i'm ready for that being able to open up the doors and the windows of the house and let the fresh air in i'm i'm ready for the bugs to go away i'm ready for you know my sweatshirts oh i got some mickey mouse sweatshirts that i just can't wait to wear again and it's that time of the year where the, this month is going to seem to drag on until we get towards the end of September, early October, where we might start to get some of those cool evenings. But 18 years of living here, and now it seems like my desire for these seasons to change is coming faster and faster. Uh, this winter, I was ready for spring, oh, I don't know, about uh, January 2nd, and now here it is, you know, September, and I was ready for some cool weather. Oh, a month ago anyway eh, the weather you can't complain about it and they're never right about it anyway so it doesn't matter uh hey do me a favor keep uh, sharing the pipes magazine radio show out on all your uh, facebook groups forums whatever tell people about it remember there's uh, all the episodes are still available for listening download and uh itunes and all that stuff so i uh, hope you are enjoying the story time with alan schwartz i think i've got one more episode worth and uh You know, we'll we'll just keep plugging away and find maybe I'll find another uh, another wealth of uh, information like Alan and uh, we'll do another series like that. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in and until next time.
4: If you shoot him, you'll just make him mad.